Again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Thank you, Kara, for reading scripture. And I'd like to add my welcome to that of Sten. This morning, I'm Mike Traven. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity Fellowship Church. Uh, you may notice uh, my voice is a little different. I'm not feeling at the top of my game. Today, uh, yesterday, Christy and I decided to road trip to Kansas City and go to a Taylor Swift concert. And we spent most of the night just screaming our brains out singing every song, and then we, for some reason, smoked cigars in the car on the way home, and it just hasn't really um, worked out for me. So um, none of that is true, <laughs> other than the fact that um, I've been battling some upper respiratory thing for the past couple of weeks. So um, would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Father, we trust in your perfect presence and in your power and your goodness. And Father, we know that you're here with us this morning, and so I pray, God, that you would um, guide my words, that you would give me wisdom, and that you would open our hearts and minds to hear the truth of your word that is being proclaimed from this passage this morning. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, well, we are continuing in our series on the life of David, a series we've entitled Pursuing God's Heart. We're looking at David's life and his heart. He's not a perfect man, but he's the man that God has anointed as Israel's king. And as we come to this portion of 2 Samuel, David is designated as king by the leaders of Israel. He'd been anointed by God years before, but now at the age of 30, after Saul's death, the leaders, the people of Israel, have determined to designate him as king. 
And so after seven and a half years of reigning over Judah from Hebron, David, in this part of the narrative, he advances to Jerusalem to take possession of the city, to expel the Jebusites, we read in chapter 5. And he, he captures the fortress of Zion and he begins to expand and improve the city. He establishes Jerusalem, the city of David, as his capital out of obedience to the long-neglected Torah command to eradicate all elements of the Canaanites from the Promised Land, something that his predecessor, King Saul, hadn't followed through on. It demonstrates David's continuity with Moses and establishes himself as a king devoted to the Lord's demands. Indeed, a man after God's own heart. This portion of 2 Samuel from chapter 5 to chapter 10 is really the apex of David's career as the king. In chapter 5, verse 10, it tells us David's power grew steadily for the Lord God of heaven's armies was with him. Well, in this portion of the narrative that precedes our text, we see that that David continues to battle the Philistines. He meets them in battle twice at the Valley of Rephaim. He defeats them both times, and in one of those accounts, the Philistines abandon their idols, their lesser gods, on the field of battle, and David and his men collect them up. I assume they destroyed them. But David now concerned that the Philistines might attempt a reprisal by taking possession of the ark of God and and destroying the ark, David moves to bring the ark to Jerusalem. You see, the ark had been with, uh, with Israel after their exodus from Egypt. It had been a continual part of their life and their culture. It was the place that Yahweh, the God of Israel, had promised to meet and speak with Moses at the tent of the meeting where the ark resided. It had been present with Israel throughout their wilderness journey and wanderings, and when they crossed the Jordan and and entered Jericho, the ark preceded them in their conquest of the land that God had promised to them. And for over a hundred years, After the conquest of Canaan, the ark resided about 30 miles north of Jerusalem in a town called Shiloh. It was Israel's religious center. It was the home to the tabernacle. It's where Eli, the high priest, ministered. And it was the home of Samuel where he lived under the care of Eli, the high priest. But the ark also had a military role in in leading the Israelites in battle against the Philistines. We see this throughout this story in the scripture. Hollywood capitalized on this in the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark. I think it was late 80s. The premise is, is that Adolf Hitler, the leader of Nazi Germany, believes that by possessing the Ark of the Covenant, his army will be invincible. And so U.S. Army intelligence enlists the help of professor and archaeologist Indiana Jones to to beat the Nazis to finding the ark and preserving it. 
Well, if you haven't seen the movie by now, I'm going to ruin it for you. They open the ark and it melts their faces. It's just bad news for the Nazis, just like it was for Uzzah. And it, so the ark is this powerful object. At one point, now talking about the actual biblical narrative, the, the ark is, is captured by the Philistines. The Israelites go to battle with the ark, and it encourages them and emboldens them, emboldens them. But in their disobedience, the Philistines are able to capture the ark. But the ark brought them so much suffering that the Philistines sent it back on a cart pulled by oxen, and they sent it back with a lot of gifts of gold. Just take this thing back. Well, the ark ends up in a place called Kirith-Jerim, only a few miles from Philistine territory in the house of Abinadab, a Levite, where it would remain for 20 years. The Levites were those who were tasked with care for the holy objects of the tent of the meeting. The Aaronic priests were Levites, and they were the priests that served in the tent of the meeting. Well, the Ark of the Covenant was essentially a box, The Bible tells us it was about four feet long by two and a half feet wide by two and a half feet tall. It was made of acacia wood and overlaid with gold. Its top cover supported two winged cherubim, two winged creatures. They faced each other across the top of the ark with their outstretched wings touching at the wingtips. We have a replica of the ark at Trinity Fellowship Church. We've been hiding it in room A5 for the last eight years. We just moved it into Sten Eric's office last Friday. But Sten won't look at it lest his head explode. So it's there, if you're curious. I have not had the courage to look to see what we've been storing in it. But you might be disappointed to know, I don't know if it ever had a, a cover that actually had the cherubim on it. It's just got a flat lid in our version. But all levity aside, the ark is the most significant artifact for Israel's religion, and it was the object most closely associated with Israel's God in the Old Testament. It protected and preserved the sacred objects that they held within it, the tablets of stone that God had given to Moses when he made covenant with him at Sinai. The ark is said to have contained the the staff of Aaron, as well as a jar of manna that fed the Israelites in their wilderness wanderings. These were sacred objects to the Israelites, but it was also more than that, a place of divine revelation. It was, in fact, the Lord's throne. It's the place where, in essence, heaven and earth met, where God came down and met with Moses in the tent of the meeting. All of the Old Testament scripture pictures Yahweh as residing in the center of Israel's camp within the innermost room, the Holy of Holies, of this tent of the meeting, the tabernacle, what ultimately would become the temple of Jerusalem. According to our text today and and earlier texts, the full name of the ark appears to be the, the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim. 
And so David purposes to bring this incredibly important object to Jerusalem, transferring the, the former religious authority and power of Shiloh as a religious center, which had um, been lost for decades, to a, the newly designated capital city. You see, the ark's presence there would be a sign. It would be the most powerful sign of, of God's support for David and the kingdom of Israel. So David had a lot of reasons to bring the ark to Jerusalem, to prevent its loss to the Philistines, to establish Jerusalem as the city of David in accordance with God's desires. But as we heard read this morning, those things seem to go off the rails. When passing through the threshing floor of Nacon, the oxen pulling the cart carrying the ark stumble. And Uzzah, a Levite, a Kohathite, a, a person who's charged with caring for these religious objects, he's one of the sons of Abinadab, he reaches out and he grabs hold of the ark to steady it, and God kills him on the spot. What? If I could do the record scratch sound. <laughs> what? I mean, David is perplexed. He becomes angry, the scripture tells us. He becomes afraid. He stops the whole procession in its tracks. And he sends the ark away to the house of Obed-Edom, who I'm sure was really thrilled to get it. But as we heard this morning, in verse 11, thank you for adding that, God blessed Obed-Edom. I mean, honestly, I'm taken aback every time I read this verse of Scripture. I mean, don't the best of intentions count for something? So this text challenge us, challenges us in a lot of ways. It, it challenges us or lays bare our assumptions and understanding of who God is. It challenges or lays bare our assumptions and expectations of how God should behave. Why would a loving God act so harshly? I know a lot of people, I don't know why it chokes me up, but a lot of people struggle with this verse. I'm just reminded of our church in California a long, long time ago, a person in our, a friend of ours, could not, just could not understand why God would strike us down. Well, we've all developed conceptions of God and the church and Christians and, and what we should be and how we should behave and how God should respond and, and how all that fits. We've, into these neatly crafted, gold-covered boxes we've constructed for ourselves for our personal faith and practice, right? We, we all carry around a little ark of our own. I don't know what you have in yours might be um, your favorite Bible translation. I prefer the, the New English translation. I think it's the best. I thought that was a joke, but maybe you didn't. Um, but, but we all might do well to examine the contents of these boxes that we've built for our personal and our corporate faith, right? Do the arcs that you and I carry around have enough room for reverence and awe? for personal wonder and curiosity, for the very idea that God is so 
magnificently good and loving and powerful that we don't fully understand him. Do we have room for divine mystery and incomprehensibility and for the personal humility that propels us on this lifelong journey of faith and obedience as disciples of Christ? Or do we constantly think we've got to have it all figured out? I'm going to give you an answer of why God struck Uzzah down. It's an answer. It may not be the complete answer. But this morning I want to offer three truths that we can take away from this text and apply to our lives. Truths about God's presence. Truths about God's holiness. And a truth or truths about God's undiminishingness. You see, because God's unchanging desire is to be a persistent presence and among and a blessing to his image bearers. We see this throughout the scriptures from the first chapter of Genesis to the last chapter of Revelation. God's presence among his creation and with his people is a common and persistent thread. God is not trying to keep us at an arm's distance. God is constantly trying to close the distance between you and I. The Old Testament scripture associated God's presence his physical presence with the ark. But God's presence comes with some conditions and some safeguards, as we obviously see, right? I think the only true condition for God's presence in our lives is our desire that we be present with him. I think that's the only condition that God holds out. You want to experience my presence? Then desire me. But with God's presence come all of his divine attributes, his goodness, his love, his mercy, his grace, his righteousness, his wisdom, and his wrath, and his holiness. And God is so perfectly holy and utterly uncorruptible that safeguards have got to be put in place for imperfect humans to experience his presence. It was More true, more so true, in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, before Jesus, before the Holy Spirit. I'll come back to that in a moment. But how do we know this, right? When we we read in Exodus, in chapter 33, Moses speaking to God, he says, God, show me your glory. Moses, desiring to be ever closer to God's presence, Moses, the very human being that God spoke to face to face, unlike any other human being, and Moses is like, God, show me your glory. And what does the Lord respond? He says, I'll make all my goodness pass before you. I'll make all my goodness pass before your face. And I will proclaim the Lord by name before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. But he added, you cannot see my face, for no one can see my face and live. My friends, does does that make God an unloving God? I think God is saying, look, there, there are attributes about me. There is a power in my presence that you can't comprehend and you couldn't humanly survive if you were exposed to it. And so I'm putting safeguards in place, but I'm going to show you my goodness. 
I'm going to show you my mercy and my graciousness. You see, along with all of God's goodness and love and mercy as a divine power, our, our mere human forms cannot handle. God puts Moses in the cleft of the rock in order to pass by, and, and he allows Moses to glimpse his glory, but he does it with a provision that preserves Moses' life. And I think that's part of what's going on here in the story of David bringing the ark to Jerusalem, and he goes about it the wrong way. And Uzzah pays the price. In the same way, God has given you and I guidelines that have to be followed in order to experience his presence. God gave guidelines to the Israelites that had to be followed in order to experience his physical presence with the ark. Now, for you and I who live and worship in this day and age, God's perfect provision for his presence is Christ, in whom is, he is the bearer of the new covenant, and he's the focus of God's presence. God is so like Jesus, there is no unchristlikeness in God at all. It's a favorite axiom of mine. I didn't invent it, but it, it strikes me because we keep looking for God and wondering what he's like, and God's like, I've given you the most vivid, perfect human example of who I am in the person of Jesus. There is no unchrist likeness in me, God the Father, and God the Spirit. He's poured out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, and we know and enjoy the presence of God the Father and the Son in the, in the provision and the leading of God the Spirit. But the danger for us, friends, is the same as it was for David and for Uzzah. Familiarity can breed some complacency. As we contemplate that, that he is the God of love and all that flows out of that, we can give less weight to the fact that he's also the God of perfect holiness, a holiness that demands something of us. You see, the holiness of God is, is beyond our complete comprehension. It's more powerful and more mysterious than we assume. We, we think we've got it all figured out. I, we've got our theology, we've got our various views, it all fits neatly in our box. I live my life this way, I do these things, I check the box, I feel really comfortable about my Christian life. And God says, I'm so much more than that. You see, because the ark was the place of God's presence, it was, it was sacred. And we've heard, we've seen, it was, it was indeed dangerous to friends and foes alike. God's holiness is this incorruptible and perfectly pure thing that cannot be rendered impure by contact with sinful humanity. And as we've seen, such contact immediately results in this impurity being utterly destroyed or obliterated by God's holy presence. Aaron's son... Aaron, the high priest, his sons Nadab and Abihu, we read, they, they find this out the hard way. They, 
The Bible tells us they used unauthorized fire and, and God's fire consumed them. And Uzzah finds out today in our passage. You see, the Torah had, a, had assigned responsibility for service related to the most holy things in the tent of the meeting to the Kohathites. They were a, a clan from among the Levites. They were the priests who served in this religious capacity. Specifically, it was the Aaronic priests, if you read in Numbers how these objects were to be handled. It was the Aaronic priests who were the ones who prepared all of the holy contents of the tent of the meeting for transport. And it was only the Kohathites, their job was just to carry it after the Aaronic priests had prepared them for transport, once they'd gotten everything ready for movement. And furthermore, if you read how the ark and all the other items were prepared for transport, it involved covering the items with multiple layers of covering, uh, kind of an insulation, if you will. The ark was first to be covered with a screening curtain that came out of the tent of the meeting, and then over that cover was a cover of fine leather, and then over that was a cover of blue cloth. And only then were the poles that were designed to carry the ark, only then were they inserted, and only then could the Kohathites carry the items. But in Numbers chapter 4, verse 15, it very specifically says, but they must not touch any holy thing, or they will die. Now, Ahio and Uzzah were Levites from the clan of Kohath, but they were not Aaronic priests. Now, it's not clear in our scripture passage, but I don't get the sense that before they took the ark and put it on this cart, a cart, albeit not the authorized form of transportation, it doesn't say anything about going through the process of covering. Now, I don't know how they got it onto the carts. It's a bit confusing to me. Did they touch it? I don't know. But David, in verses 3 to 5, say, say he has the men set the ark of God on a new cart. It certainly was a sign of respect for a holy object, but it ignored the guidelines that God gave about handling his holy objects. And I don't think God was just trying to, you know, set up a trap. I'm going to make these really complex instructions, so you screw it up, and then I'm going to reach out and zap you dead. I think God did it out of love. God's putting safeguards in place. It's like you telling your child, don't, don't put the screwdriver in the outlet. <laughs> it's, not, it's not how that works. In fact, David's actions were really more in line with how the Philistines treated the ark. When the Philistines sent the ark back to Israel, they put it on a cart and sent it on its way. And so when the oxen stumble in this case, and Uzzah reaches out and it says, took hold of the ark of God to stabilize and to protect it, he essentially commits a capital offense. He violates a stipulation of the law that says it will end in death. His conscientious effort to protect the ark actually defiled it, and so the Lord's anger, it says, burned against Uzzah. There's a not very well-known or highly subscribed to 
theory about why the oxen stumbled. It's the threshing floor of Nacon. The oxen heard bacon. When they got there, they were disappointed. They stumbled. Bacon is a stumbling block to many people. I, I don't think there's a lot of weight in that, but I just thought, you know, those of you that are interested in the details. But I think we should be careful, though, to not think of God's anger here, this word anger being used as, as anything unrighteous, right? I mean, if God is perfectly love, what does the anger of God look like? If Jesus says, in your anger, do not sin, I don't think God was losing control of his faculties in this case. I tend to think of it more like how we would describe, man, it's an angry sky today. Or, wow, the sea's really angry today. We're talking about the power of something. And so when we read of of God's anger, I think it's God's power going out. It's something uncontrollable, right? When you and I fail to give due regard to the immense power of something, we're we're placing ourselves and others at risk. I'm reminded of this uh, Titan submersible that sadly imploded a few weeks ago. It was something that I would wake up in the middle of the night and go, oh man, I hope they find him. I mean, it just captured me, but I'm reminded that, that... It's an example of, I think, what's going on here, right? I mean, these highly skilled people built a submersible and and they're using new methods and technology and they're having some success and they're growing more and more comfortable. But they were ignoring the sort of tried and true standard, if you will, the guidelines about what deep submersibles look like. They don't look like Cans made out of carbon fiber with titanium ends, the standard is a sphere of titanium that is the deeper you go into the ocean's pressure, it just compresses stronger and stronger and stronger, right? Like Uzzah, uh, these five occupants of the submersible, they, they assumed that what they were doing was right. A lot of them thought what they were doing was good. They were advancing exploration and technology and research, and they thought it was safe, numerous safeguards built in. But the immutable nature of the deep ocean and the laws of physics would not yield to any flaw in their approach. It's not unlike the immutable laws and the nature of the Lord God Almighty who sits enthroned between the cherubim. David and Uzzah's intentions and actions, they serve to remind us of the danger of presumption in our spiritual lives. I think David's thinking that God's going to be really glad I'm bringing the ark into the city of David, the capital of God's kingdom, Israel. He's going to be happy that we're worshiping along the way. And we're worshiping with great joy. And we're, we've put it on a, the Rolls Royce of ground transportation. But presuming to know better or presuming to ignore the hard facts of the law, they have great consequences. So how might you and I be approaching or handling God in a way that's 
unauthorized. I don't, I don't know. But I think it's, it's a question worth considering. How are we to approach the presence of God? Well, we're able to freely approach God in Christ, but we're also reminded to do it with penitence. It's part of why we confess our sins corporately as a body every Sunday. It's why God asks us to confess our sins to him, and and he makes us righteous through the work of Christ. But the holiness of God demands that we always approach him in humility, Acknowledging his holiness and the magnitude of his presence in our lives and understanding that his ways are higher than our own. In C.S. Lewis's The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, True Confession, I haven't read the whole thing. I've listened to a few minutes of it on tape, but I've heard this quote often where Aslan, the Lion King, is reported to be coming into the land, and, and, and Lucy and Susan are, are worried that they're going to encounter a lion, they, and they say, is it safe? Is he safe? And Mr. Beaver tells them, he says, of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. And so, friends, are, 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 in, in some sense, our God's not safe if you approach him the wrong way. But he's good. And this undiminishing goodness of God is is our divine anchor point in uncertainty and confusion. It's the most important thing, if you haven't stopped listening up to this point, that you could take away from this morning's message that, that the undiminishing goodness of God is our divine anchor point. In any time we're facing uncertainty, in confusion. You see, we read in verse 10, David becomes angry, he becomes fearful, he's, he's unwilling to bring the ark of the Lord to be with him in Jerusalem, so he leaves it with Obed, Edom, the Gittite. And then he begins to hear reports, well, the Lord is blessing Obed-Edom. So David's figuring out, well, okay, the, the ark's not unsafe, maybe I did something wrong, and he, he figures it out, and he purposes to bring the ark back into Jerusalem, and this time he does it the right way. And friends like David, there's going to be times in our lives where the things we experience or witness will, will challenge our understanding of God, will challenge our night nicely, tightly packaged view of God. We'll find ourselves in David's shoes where we ask, couldn't you have acted differently? And how will we answer when we face those circumstances? You see, everyone you and I encounter either either needs the gospel, the truth of the gospel, the saving grace of the gospel, or the encouragement of the gospel. And how do we make this a reality for ourselves and for others, right? The provision for God's presence for us in this age is in Christ. And the encouragement of God's goodness, I think, is found in the body of Christ. It's why the church is important. We are the visible manifestation of Christ's body and blood on earth. 
That's part of God's design for the church. It's not just to come here and hear some really fascinating sermons, get smarter, and pack more things in our ark. It's to be the body of Christ, to encourage one another to love and good deeds. And so the journey of the ark in 2 Samuel 6, it's a, it's a profound reminder to us of the holiness of God and the dangers of presumption in how we approach God and the importance of obedience and the joy of worship that we see David displaying here and the blessings of God's presence. I don't think that Uzzah, though he lost his life while exercising, albeit incorrectly, a priestly duty, I don't think Uzzah lost his salvation. I think we're going to see Uzzah in eternity. But I pray that we would learn from David's example, that that we would learn to uh, approach God with reverence, to obey his commands, to worship him wholeheartedly, and in doing so, embrace the abundant blessings that come from his presence in our lives. Let us strive to be people after God's own heart, trusting in his unwavering goodness and allowing his presence to transform our lives and bring glory to his holy name. Would you pray with me? Well, Heavenly Father, you are wholly other. In so many ways, divinely incomprehensible to our finite and flawed human hearts and minds, and yet perfect in your goodness and your love and your mercy, your grace, your righteousness, and your wisdom. As the angels sing out, God, you are holy, holy, holy. And you've poured out your love into our hearts by your Spirit, and you've revealed yourself to us in the most comprehensible of human ways, in the person, in the word, in the works of Jesus. And his promise is his perfect presence, Lord, to be with us until the end of the age. And as we live and serve and worship and wait with expectant hope, in his promised return, I, God, you look on us with the perfection of Christ so that we may never fear to approach you. God, we thank you for the provision of your Son and for, of your Spirit. And I pray that in an ever-increasing and humble way that we could yield to its power and presence in our lives. And that we could lean in to your design for the church that is a form of your body so that we need only look to our left and to our right to be able to reach out and to touch you, God. And we be, may we be mindful of just how close you are to each and every one of us at every moment of every day of our lives. And we pray all these things in the good name of your son, Jesus. Amen.